I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Bridget Kalin's story is unlike any other we've heard so far on the podcast. She's a musician, composer, and coach who commands over 10 different instruments and has played with people like Elvis Costello and opened for Loretta Lynn. Though it took her a long time to realize her musical talent was incredible early on, but she never thought of it as a serious enough career. After a stint at CBS News that included working for Andy Cohen before the Bravo days and a bad run-in with Bill Cosby himself, it was her mom's cancer that ended up steering Bridget in a direction she never thought she could go. She reflects on that path, motherhood, the life-changing impact of trusting our instincts, and how her own recent cancer diagnosis has shifted her thinking. Bridget Kalin, thank you so much for joining me, for taking the time. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. Another adult. That's exciting. <laughs> Break from kids and homeschooling. I'm glad I can provide that. I hope it lives up to a, a good hour for you. How are things over there, COVID-wise, in Kentucky, where you are? What is life like these days? It's very isolated. Kentucky is a strange place to be in a good year. And this year, <laughs> it, you know, it's a deeply red state. And I'm sure. in Louisville in a very, very liberal pocket. However, I live two blocks from Mitch McConnell. So oh, it's... Wow. Yeah, there's constant. Yeah, it's very. St- I know. I don't know why he lives here because um, he's not popular in this particular postal code. But it's been interesting because we get this huge gap between people who are absolutely taking care of each other and staying home, and then other people who just deliberately walk outside, masks, you know, nowhere to be seen, and just no no sense of community. And it's it's frustrating. So. This year for you guys, I guess, has been a mix of the COVID that we've all been going through and also a very strange political environment, I guess, in your backyard. Yeah, America's the last four years have been wild times in America and in, you know, particularly in Kentucky. But um, this year is just it's just wild. And we're just trying to stay safe and stay home. My four year old has asthma and I've got some immune issues now. So we're trying to just stay home and we're lucky we can stay home. That is the most important. That has refocused for a lot of people that really health is all that matters. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk Kentucky because you were born in Kentucky, right? Did you grow up there as well? What was your childhood like? I did. In fact, I'm sitting here in the same house that I grew up in right now. And my mom grew up in this house too. She bought it from her parents. So it's very strange, especially because as a kid, I wanted to get so far away from Kentucky. I at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't the epicenter of America and that most people couldn't even point it out on a map. So I was just desperate to escape. I was talking to my husband last night about how ridiculous it is that I'm not just back home, but literally in the same bedroom <laughs> and raising my kids here. It's sweet and it's a really nice place to be. But as a kid, I, feel I did like that's not something re- a lot of people go through, though, is like they swear off their childhood environment saying I got to get as far away as possible, go through a few different stages of life and then somehow find themselves back in a different state of mind. We do. And it's I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. I used to be, you know, when I moved home from New York, it was kind of like a this is temporary, I swear. And um and now here I am. I lived abroad for a couple of years in Scotland. But after my eight-year-old was born, he was born in Scotland, We, I just felt terrible leaving the one grandparent or the one grandchild away from my parents. So yeah, we up. moved back for family. Tell me a little bit more about sort of how you grew up and then how music becomes part of your life, because it's obviously a massive part of your life today. I get the impression that it was from a very early age. It was. My parents always had music on. Neither of them was particularly 
musical. My mom actually couldn't carry a tune at all, but she sang and danced around the house too. Mostly the old songwriters like John Prine and Carole King. And there was always songs and music just playing. We had a piano. I, I grew up low income, but in kind of a wealthy neighborhood, which was an interesting observation for me to go to other people's houses and everybody had like massive TVs, but no one else had a piano. So to me, I thought you were supposed to have a piano. I had this piano, we had a guitar around. My dad was a bartender. So every so often he'd, you know, win a bet and someone couldn't pay. So he brought home an instrument for me. But (laughs) my grandfather, my mom's mom was a professional trumpeter in the, he was in the army band during World War II and traveled the world playing in Duke Ellington type bands, you know, the big band trumpet show tune era. So I knew that music could be a career, but I was also always told it was for boys, <laughs> so, which is just a strange thing. I mean, I'm 42, so I feel like I shouldn't have received that message in the 80s, and yet I did. So yeah, I took piano lessons from an early age, always kind of thought it was going to just be a background thing, but it was always there. And I I recognize now that I was good at it. At the time, I didn't think I was any better than anyone else. Yeah, you you didn't have an outside voice saying, hey, you're actually, you have a unique skill here. Yeah, that's actually something that I was just talking to somebody else about that's sort of irritating to me. And I'm trying to change that with my students when I'm teaching them and my own children is that if somebody has a talent that's unique, or if somebody can do something better than anyone else, and they don't know it, then they never try. So one thing that I was exceptional at that I didn't realize until the past few years was sight reading piano oh, in my that musical is such career. An incredible skill. Thank you. I like, played piano I, growing up like like other people study piano. And that was one of the things I was always most envious of. That was really tough for me. I was never I was like a from a memory person. Yes. And most people are. I, I've taught off and on since I was 16. And most people have an ear and can remember and play it back. And I think mine's sort of innate skill, but also it kind of came about because I didn't want to practice. So I just had to play it right when I got to my lesson. And I learned to fake my way around it. But I didn't recognize that that was a really useful skill. And that when I moved to New York City at 17 to go to college, I could have gone down to a Broadway theater and said, hey, put me on your sub list. You know, I'll I can read the show, I can play the the song. And so instead, I just sort of, you know, I was pre-law, I did all the right things, you know, I got good grades, so I just didn't. You you definitely got far away from home, first of all, as you said you wanted to, if you went to New York City, to NYU. How did you end up getting into law? And I mean, (laughs) what was that transition (laughs) like? I was good at school. And I, f- I think I mistook that for then thinking I had to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, you know, those were the kind of my mom was Jewish and she didn't put that pressure on me. But I also kind of just knew that that's sort of what was expected, that I was someday going to take care of them. And so I had to have like a big a career. serious profession? Yes, something that was specific. I was a, you know, political philosophy major with a jazz piano minor. So two very useful things. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, these days, I would argue, first of all, music is obviously useful for you because it's become your life. And second of all, philosophy is at this particular moment in time when we're all reevaluating our lives, not totally irrelevant. You're right. <laughs> I need to, you know, not dismiss my my fancy degree. I guess the ability to read something and then take different points of views from it is probably the most useful thing. Because I mean, in every career I've been part of, that's been the core of it and storytelling and finding messages in other people's stories. After college, I I was an intern at CBS News in New York, which of course, you know, I was far away from Kentucky. So I was going to just like do all the cool things that New York offered, but it offered everything, you know, anything you wanted. And my RA had been 
what is it, resident assistant? She worked at CBS. NYU wasn't very social. I did my undergrad too at NYU, yeah. And um, I loved it, but it was definitely, it's not a place you go to have like a coddled student experience. I always described it as you live in New York and you just happen to be a student. Exactly. Spot on. My friends would come visit me and just be mystified that, you know, there's no quad or Washington Square Park was the quad. (laughs) Where's the square? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I did this internship at CBS and my first boss was uh, Andy Cohen. He's on Bravo, hosts that Watch What Happens. He was behind the scenes then. Yeah, he was 28 and he was a senior producer at CBS this morning. He was great. I loved working for him. He was, uh, he set me out on all kinds of things. I think he, he gave me this test when I first worked there, which was basically busy work. You know, it was like, here are all the faxes. This is still a fax time. All the faxes with all the celebrities in town today. I need you to go through everything and create a Rolodex for me with the publicist. And I guess I passed that test because he started sending me on his interviews that he didn't really want to go to or have time to go to, which was great for me. Oh, yeah. And yeah so I got what to, kind of stuff did you do there? What was that experience was, like? As a that That's like your first real work experience, I guess. It was. And, you know, I kept a journal and I've I found it the other day and I was talking to some friends about it because it was just such a wild thing. And to me, I thought I was like, you know, here I am from Kentucky and you guys think I'm so naive, but I'm not. I'm watching you and you guys are the silly ones and all your shiny <laughs> outfits and your fancy dinners and ha ha ha, you all don't know what like life made is really for a like. show, I feel like. <laughs> totally. You know, in retrospect, I absolutely was the like, intern from Kentucky who really didn't have a lot of world experience. So, you know, I got out. I think my first job was to go to the VH1 Fashion Awards because uh, oh, wow. Andy Cohen, That's he was the in the first job. I know I, I had fun stories. And but it's funny to read my notebooks from that time, because the things that I wrote down are things that I would not put up with now. Like I was just the way I was treated. And Andy Cohen was great to me. But a lot of the other guests or other celebrities that I ran into were just the the people who I'd lean over and get them a cup of coffee and they'd just like smack my butt. And I would write down like, ha ha ha, isn't that funny that, you know, so-and-so grabbed my butt today. Uh, that made me awkward, but I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And you know, now I would totally say something. So I think well, that's like it's- amazing to have a documentation of an earlier version of yourself experiencing all those things for the first time. It's both painful to read and entertaining. When you were starting at CBS there, was that part of this thinking that I got to do a, a hardcore serious job of some kind and make something of myself? Or did you feel like you were going down a path that was legitimately right for you? Yeah, I, I don't think I knew. And I, in retrospect, asking a 17-year-old to choose a major is just overwhelming. No. And my husband and I were talking about that. So the envy we have of people who just knew the thing that they wanted to do, and that thing had a specific plan that you just, you know, med school, for example, like, here's what you do, right. and no decisions. And to have decisions can be just crippling. And to have those taken away is amazing. And I can't even imagine. So I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I was young for my grade, and then I ended up graduating early. So I was 20 when I graduated, and I'd been pre-law, and I was applying for law schools. And then one of the professors had said, why don't you just wait a year? You're really young. And so I said, okay, I'll wait a year before I get anything. And then I'm still waiting. So 20 years later, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I really liked digging out the stories that the cases told and thinking about the people involved. And when I worked at CBS, that's the thing I loved about it too. It was every day there was somebody new telling their story. And my first job was the green room. 
And I would just get there at 5 a.m. and find breakfast for whoever was on the show today. And sometimes it was somebody huge. You know, we'd have Mel Gibson or Bill Cosby or he's the one who grabbed my butt, by the way. Seriously? Yes, totally. Bill Cosby grabbed your butt when you were like 20 at CBS as an intern. You and many other women, I suppose. Yeah, it was it was such an uncomfortable thing. That's part of the thing I was looking at in my journal. I was I laughed it off at the time and I'm like, "Wow. Also, he did this to so many people and I shouldn't laugh it off no matter who it was, but I was, you know, it was my job. It was Bill Cosby, this childhood hero. I'm obviously lucky that's all that it was." So sitting in the green room, I'd encounter all kinds of people. And sometimes they had really, or most of the times I had really great stories. Sometimes it was just, you know, your firefighter who rescued a cat and they had a great story. So it wasn't always people who were famous, but I loved digging that part out and talking to the people and finding out how they got to where they were. And that's actually, that's interesting because that's so much about what this is about. Because in all the years that I've interviewed people and talked to people in a news context, it was always kind of also the story behind the story that interested me most is how people got to where they are, not just, you know, to promo the new movie or the political conversation or whatever it is, but what went into that, the behind the scenes that we don't get to see. And that for people, I think we're very similar in this, like you and I, who don't have some clear career path from day one, that path is is what's interesting is how you end up making those decisions and, and coming to learn more about yourself along the way. You know, if we're talking about that path, it seems like, I mean, from what I know, you had force majeure in a way intervene in your life path around that time when you were in your early 20s. Tell me about that. I did. So right after college, you know, I, I had been interning for CBS. I took the job that they offered me. I, I was actually offered two jobs after graduation. One was with CBS and one was with McKinsey and Company, a company I'd never heard of. It was 1999, so it was pre-internet. And I keep thinking of my alternate life. Like if I'd taken that job, what would I be doing? Probably lying back on my private island somewhere. Who knows, I might be, you know, <laughs> laid up, completely burned out. But I took the job in CBS News Productions, which was the part of CBS that took the old films and recycled them, basically. And so they had this huge archive. So I would do A&E biographies or produce shows for the History Channel. And I love that. And I was really kind of deep into it and loving telling the stories. Every six weeks, I got a new project. So it wasn't, you know, it sort of suited my ADHD quite well. I could fly around, talk to neat people, be done with it, move on. And then my mom got breast cancer. And it's such a common thing. But at the time, I didn't know anybody who had had cancer or who had dealt with it. And I don't know if that's because yeah, people talk about it. probably less talked about publicly, too. I think so. I mean, it's still, I remember being nervous saying breast to my bosses when I was explaining why I was going home. But the executive producer in my department, Marjorie Baker Riker, she was amazing to me. And she was a survivor. And she told me, you need to go home to your mom. And that was huge because the other producers there, all male, honest, now that I'm thinking back, were not so supportive. But Marjorie said, your job's here. Go be with your mom. And mom was back in Kentucky. I'm an only child. And she had stage three breast cancer. And the, even her doctors were like, you should come home. So the happy news is she, she didn't end up dying from that. And I moved home to take care of her and ended up playing music. And really, my dad was a bartender. So I played at his bar 
just kind of, I think really to hang out with my dad and entertain him. And then I made some money. And then I realized it was more money than I'd been making in network news. So So you slowly actually, just by, I I don't know if to call it by accident or what, you end up in the thing that you never thought could be a serious career and you could never make a life out of it. But it just sort of naturally happens because of all these other circumstances. Was there like a distinct moment when you say, oh, actually, this can be my life. This can be my career. Yes. And I've been playing every Sunday night in Louisville at this, actually it was a motorcycle bar, total dive bar. And I realized that I was good at taking requests. And as long as I could remember the words, I could just sort of figure out the song on the spot, which got me good tips because then people, you know, would request a song and I'd fake my way through most of it. And apparently an my faking skill. the way. Let me just tell you, like, you're probably I didn't used know to that. that. And you think that's normal, <laughs> but you. that's crazy. Just like, figure it out while you I'm, go. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around that that's crazy because to me, it's really normal. I've since learned that I've, you know, I've got some sort of spectrum issues with chords. They have names to me. I mean, beyond just A minor and C major and stuff, they they sound like a certain thing. So if I've heard it once, I can kind of repeat it back like that old Simon game, you know, with the red and yellow dots and stuff. It's just math to me. But I realized one night when I, somebody had asked me to sit in on piano, mostly I'd been playing guitar and doing the folk singer thing, but somebody asked me to play piano in their rock band and it was so easy to me. And then I realized that I got paid more because I was the sideman, like the hired gun. So I realized that playing in other people's bands was my day job and I could still sing my own songs and do my own jobs, but throughout the week, I could play in a lot of different other bands and suddenly it, you know, I could buy health insurance. It was wild. On that note, Bridget, let's just hear a little bit from your latest album, Those Who Drift Away. Give me one So much of your musical self-discovery happened after you went home to care for your mom who was battling cancer. So, I mean, what was it like being in that space where you're caring for your mom in a very shocking and difficult family situation, but also discovering your own skills and creativity? Yeah, cancer has had this bizarre impact on my life that I never would have expected it to. But I think when I came back, and my mom was sick. She was determined to beat it. Her doctors were not so convinced. She did. It spread a bit, but she went through chemo and radiation and was just determined to live life. So she went out every night. She came to hear me at all my shows. You know, her doctor said, don't you dare drink. And she was just like, I'm dying. So here's my bourbon. And yes, <laughs> it's Kentucky. There is a lot of bourbon. Right. You kind of have and to. my mom, yeah, she just sort of decided that she was going to do exactly what she wanted to do, whether or not that was a good idea. And she didn't really have a lot of care for how that affected other people. She would be angry at me for saying that, but I absolutely Mm -hmm. recognized it in her relationship with my dad and their tensions. And my poor sweet dad just kind of put up with it. (laughs) They were married 46 years and he took care of her through sickness and health. She just developed this complete princess attitude (laughs) in those years. And it was amusing, but it was also I think I found myself taking notes, which is funny because I think I was kind of judgy at the time, like being mom, you don't get to do everything you want. And um, now I 
I feel like that's what I'm doing now is just kind of saying, you know what, life is short, just classic, you know, face death in the face and decide to do the things you love all of the time and stop work at five o'clock, no matter what anyone else thinks and be done with it. You know, my mom just developed this amazing work-life balance. She just did what she wanted. She listened to what she wanted. She ate what she wanted. She still exercised and did things mostly right, but she, her attitude just changed. And I think that rubbed off on me in terms of, you know what, I think I will play music for a little while because I've had this devastating news and I need an outlet and I'm still paying my bills. So who cares? You know, I'd still run into family who who would say, are you doing that music yeah. thing still? And it would be enraging. But um, yeah, that's really hard to be faced with someone who taps into your inner fear. This isn't viable or this isn't a serious enough job or whatever it is. And then people come and kind of rub that in the face. It, it forces you to, to sort of build strength. In that right. Space. And I feel like it, it stuck with me for far too long. And I, I wish that I'd earlier grasp the fact that lots of people are musicians and that there was this whole kind of middle class musician space that you didn't have to be a Grammy winner and you didn't have to be starving. You could play music and have it be your job and go about life and still have relationships and still have your family and not be struggling all the time. And I don't think I knew that that existed until I found myself in the middle of it. Yeah. That can be so hard to separate ourselves from what our environment or people we grow up with or just people that are around us tell us is legitimate and to really believe it and go for it. Absolutely. And I'm not sure that I did believe it at the time, but I sure just kept doing it. It was fun and I got to stay out and see my friends and I always felt really safe on the stage. I'm actually really quite introverted and just going out to my friends and hanging out at a bar or something was never something I enjoyed. But if I got on stage, it was safe. There's a microphone there's a frame. That's so interesting that a lot of artists are like that, that they say they're so shy or don't like to be in social situations, but then sitting in what seems to be the most vulnerable possible position in front of people making art, you know, singing, playing is not scary. Was it always like that for you? Always. And I can't explain it. But I was like that in school. I was nervous. I never raised my hand. I was super shy. But you know, the school play just put me up there. And afterwards was devastating. I hated the, you know, I can picture now the hallway where we had to stand there and everybody came through and all the parents and other kids said hi to you and the cast was sitting there. Oh, I would just want to crawl in a closet during that time. I feel like that's a great lesson, though, in trying to to identify where your space is, like where that place is where you just feel kind of at home and comfortable. Because I think everyone has something like that. Yes. You know, it might not be so clear cut, but a space that is actually like, oh, okay, this is, this comes naturally. This is where I belong in one way or another. And that's definitely something that takes a while to figure out for, for most people. Yes. I feel so lucky that my parents had that piano in the house and that they recognized that I liked it and put me in lessons. Cause I, you know, what if the thing I'm really good at is like skeet shooting or something I've never done, you know? <laughs> well, if we're talking about parenting, you mentioned before your son, I know you have two sons. Where were you at in your life when you became a mom? How, how do you think that changed your I had you, to 100% be okay with my career being finished. And I hate saying that because if I don't want to, you know, upset other people or anyone listening out there, I don't want to deter them from having a family or having kids. Anything can be a family, but from having kids because it's such a personal choice, but I just had to kind of tell myself, okay, you can do both, but certain things you're not going to be able to do anymore. I think it's just that I hadn't reached a certain level of income. And the fame, it doesn't matter so much. I was still working a lot. But when you're self-employed at all, then having children is a huge obstacle because especially in America where you don't get maternity leave, I suddenly 
was just losing income. And yeah, I could go on about healthcare in America for hours. It'd be such a boring conversation. Yeah. So I was 32 when I married my husband. And before we met, I didn't want kids. I was I, I was listening to Yael's broadcast of your show and I was just saying, yes, the same thing. I absolutely didn't want kids. I was the person who laughed at my kids when they had them and uh, or laughed at their them saying, ha ha, life's over. I'm going out to the bar. Just like a, a total jerk, to be honest. But my husband wanted kids and I wanted kids with him. And we got married, I guess I was 33 when we got married, now that I think about it. And then I was 34 when we had our first child. And I was living in Scotland while my husband was in grad school, and I was working nonstop as a musician. I had started touring in Scotland and England a lot after my first album came out because it did quite well abroad. To get to see the world doing something you love, I mean, that's It's the dream, dream, and it was my dream. And, you know, when people ask me, quick tangent, like, what does success look like to you as a musician? Because, you know, as an artist, there's always a next level. You can always, you know, you win one Grammy, well, next year I'll win two or whatnot. It, it can be overwhelming. But for me, it always came down to I wanted to travel the world and sing songs that I wrote or tell stories to people who cared. And that was really it. I kind of put a period after that and recognized that that didn't matter if it was 10,000 people in an arena or if it was 10 people in a folk club. I That was success to me. And then it happened to pay the bills too. So that was great. But yeah, having a child definitely just changes that. And I had to be okay with that. I was surprised at how much it changed though, because I told people I was pregnant with my firstborn and they immediately started treating me like I was, you know, the most fragile thing in the world. Like they, I played a festival out in the Isle of Lewis when I was like seven months pregnant and everybody in the band was completely panicked because there was no hospital nearby. I was like, I'm not going to drop a baby on the stage. Like, it's fine. But for my, yeah, my second child, I just didn't tell anyone I was pregnant because I was losing gigs. So that's not easy, though, such a to be confronted so in your face. I don't know. So, so clearly with many women's fear, which is that their career or that their opportunities are going to change, but to, to have them change already so early on, how did you handle that? I mean, I guess not telling anyone, first of all. It was pretty devastating to me emotionally, to be honest. I had really bad postpartum depression after my first, and I think it was mostly, I mean, hormonal, of course, but it was absolutely tied to me being unable to live life how I had, which had been, you know, I'd been self-employed at that point for 10 years. And that's a whole other thing that can kind of ruin you for regular life is being able to be in control of your own vacations. and Your own boss. Yeah, it, it upset me because suddenly I would hire a babysitter like people had told me. I'd gotten some great advice from other artists and they'd said, you know, you have to, don't feel guilty about hiring a babysitter to play the piano because this is your job. So I finally would. And it would take me three hours to kind of decompress from being a parent. And suddenly I'd feel like writing again and then the babysitter would have to leave. So I really struggled those first few years with both writing, with performing, with accepting gigs that were too far in the future because I'd have I wouldn't know, you know, is the kid going to be okay? And my husband traveled four days a week for work. So I was absolutely primary caregiver. And I still worked. I still taught a lot of piano lessons. I taught more lessons in those years than recently. Um, Today, do you see it differently now that your kids are a little bit older? I think they're four and eight. Is that right? It's much easier. Do you see that kind of balance or those difficult choices in a different way now? Or what did it take for you to sort of find a better space in that way? Yeah. In some ways I think, oh gosh, they're four and eight. That's so little. And it feels like so long. And then other days, you know, the time has flown by. But I think that it taught me that I don't need a lot of lead time. I can just drop things and go to the job. And I shouldn't be afraid to say yes and figure it out later. And 
I think before I sort of overthought things like if I'm going to be gone for this long, I need to arrange all this stuff, you know, and if, if you know, it was just like feeding my dog, totally different. And having the kids has made me much more adaptable more quickly. Having them in school has been hard because their um, schedule is so rigid. And so if I suddenly get an offer in Europe, it's like I, I can't go unless it's summer break. Yeah. It's also taught me that I don't like babies. I think that's one of those things people don't say. I I absolutely hated the newborn phase, but I love, I mean, of course I loved them, but I, I hated being a parent in those moments. And it was really, that felt terrible to me. Well, for you, I mean, you were, to zoom out for a second, it's not that you were just taking care of a newborn because you were a constant caregiver in so many ways. When you're taking care of a newborn, it's you know, 24 hour a day job. And then you're also caring for your mom and for your parents, really. Absolutely. And yeah, I like the zoom out thing. It definitely helps me be not quite as hard on myself. And I think that's, that's something that I've done a lot is be really hard on myself and then get really upset when I don't do the job that I expected I would do. And I've had to, especially in the past four years when, you know, my parent, my mom got sick again, she, she had pancreatic cancer. And then my dad. God, this is such a joy, isn't it? My dad got sick at the exact same time. So both my parents had stage four cancer and I had a newborn. Oh my God. And uh, yeah, it was it was miserable years. But it did teach me that, what did it teach me? It taught me so many things. Some of them are just so cliche. But the cliche can is cliche for a reason. I mean, I'd love to hear some of what it's such an extreme emotional and literal place to to be at and thing to go through right most of my life had been pretty good until you know my mom got that devastating diagnosis but then she was fine so i felt like despite you know i grew up low income but i grew up in a really nice neighborhood so i didn't really recognize that my parents were good at hiding troubles from me and my mom got her stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis right after my second son was born. So I was home caregiving. My husband was gone four days a week. And suddenly my mom gets this terminal diagnosis. It was absolutely gut-wrenching. It always is. No cancer diagnosis, even with the best prognosis, is easy. It always, from my experience anyway, just kind of punches you in the gut. But the pancreatic cancer was just so unfair. My mom had been like vegan for 15 years and worked out and- Done everything right. She did it all right. And that that just upset her too, because she was like, man, this isn't fair. <laughs> like she had, you know, after her first diagnosis, she had just gone out and partied and said, forget it. But when she got better, she took her health really seriously. And then my dad got sick too. And I, honestly, it just felt like I was walking through some weird dream that and I, every so often I would actually just close my eyes really tight and try to open them again and see if it had just been a dream because <laughs> it was just miserable. <sighs> and uh, it's weird because it's it's okay now. My mom died two years ago. She actually lived two years with pancreatic cancer, which was shocking for everybody. Even her her doctors were mystified. And then my my dad died just a few months after she did. And <laughs> gosh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna cry. Um, just. Being in that position, you know, people talk about the sandwich generation. And here I was mm -hmm. with a baby on my back and pushing my mom in a wheelchair and just everybody needed something from me. And I wasn't able to do, you know, the thing that I love the most, which is my career, because I, I couldn't tour because mom was only had six months to live. You know, I actually was offered a part in a, a touring Broadway show and turned it down because my mom had six months to live and it was a six month tour on the road. So that was one of those things that was, I don't regret it. Of course, I spent 
great time with my mom, but my mom sure was pissed. <laughs> like she, she wanted you to go for it. She did. And I, I see that now. My, my kid is, my eight-year-old is an actor, which surprised all of us. And he had a couple of things happen when I was sick and I, you know, absolutely wanted him to go for it. So it, it makes more sense now. But oh yeah, those years were just miserable. And it was an odd relief when my parents both died. And that's one of the, another thing that feels terrible to say, but but that's okay. It's important to talk about and to, you know, reflect on those realities. I, I can't imagine. I mean, and for you to be hard on yourself, you're like a magnified version of something we all do is you know, judge ourselves much more harshly than we would other people or ha set certain expectations that are not realistic. And to be doing everything you were doing at once is, is crazy. I mean, it's superhuman. Let me, let me just try to offer the little bit of reality check from the outside that we all need to be easier on ourselves, but certainly in a situation like that and reflecting on it, there's only so much someone, you know, can do. And especially when you're being a caretaker and you're just giving, you're constantly only giving of yourself. Yes. Send me a bill for your therapy because I needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that isn't true for all people, though, is that we're hard on ourselves and you don't recognize that you were doing it until it's over. Yeah. And I feel like that was the same for my, my career. Like I was, you know, not loud about my skills because I thought I could be better and I could always be improving and, you know, just let me learn this next skill set and then I'll apply for that gig or whatnot. But when you're forced to to do hard things, you just do. I don't know anybody who's been a caregiver who just clammed up and ran away. You just do it. Well, you mentioned that w when you yourself got sick and how that, you know, changed how you saw what your son did. And also before when you were talking about not really understanding at the time how your mom was just like, you know, her behavior when she first got sick and, and understanding that more now. So I know you've been open with your own diagnosis, I believe earlier this year. Is that right? It is. It's just been barely two, three months late September, I was, well, I was diagnosed on Rosh Hashanah, which is my mom died on Rosh Hashanah. My son was born on Rosh Hashanah. And then this year in Rosh Hashanah, I, I got my own breast cancer diagnosis, which while it wasn't a total shock, um, you know, we're, we're Ashkenazi and my, everyone in my family had had something. My genetic markers were negative. So I thought maybe I had been spared the cancer genes, but um, apparently not. So yeah, mine fortunately is stage one. I had to fight really hard for this diagnosis though, because they said I, straight up two doctors had told me I was just too young. Oh my and God. I don't know why they would say that because it's so very- But you knew you had a, a feeling that something was not right. I did. They sort of, they put me on anxiety meds and antidepressants telling me that I was, you know, a little bit affected by my parents' deaths and that, but I could just feel it in my breast. I, not the, not physically, but there was a weird burning, tickling that kind of spread to my shoulder. And I just demanded, in fact, my MRI that was supposed to be in March got pushed back six months because of COVID. I guess they said that mammograms and diagnostic things were not essential. <laughs> so yeah, I had a huge fight with the healthcare system here, but I was diagnosed in September and had surgery in just a few weeks after double mastectomy. And it's, it's all good now. Every, I'm just taken this, you know, fun hormone pill for 10 years. And of course, we'll live every day with the the fear that it when will it come back? Because that's just what it's like, apparently, to live life with cancer. You'd think that I'd be a little bit more familiar with that, having seen my mom get it twice, my dad have cancer of his own, his was a sinus cancer that was related to his job in hazardous waste. But um, mm -hmm. it was still an absolute gut punch. And, you know, my son, he filmed a couple of movies. And then the week after, to go back to your question, he got offered 
he didn't get the role, but it was a callback that required some travel. And I was trying to tell his agent was like, you know, you signed up for this, you have to take him. And I was like, let me just tell you what's going on in my family. Of course, she was wonderful about that and great. But I also said, you know, we'll find a way. This is Graham and he loves this. And if he wants to do it, I'm not going to stand in his way just because I got cancer. So I get it now. My mom wanting to not let her cancer interfere with my dreams. You were mentioning before that now you have your perspective on life is a little bit more aligned with hers at the time that you didn't understand the sort of live your life kind of mentality. Has that in these past few months changed for you? It has. I feel like my mom had given me these seeds of how to go for it and not look behind, but I hadn't quite internalized that until September, which is just so strange because it's not a really deep message. It's I feel like what we all should be doing, I mean, I, I don't want to step on other people and a, a mom didn't do that. I don't think I'd do that. But just, you know, answering the phone, saying yes to things that make you nervous or saying no to things that make you uncomfortable and doing the thing you want to do, I feel like is something I wish I'd fully embraced in my 20s. Oh, 100%. But I, I think that makes a lot of sense that we can know something intellectually so clearly, but until you experience it, or you, you know, something happens to make you actually face up with it, it's so much harder to actually follow through and, and live that particular way, even if you know it's, you know, quote unquote, what you should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a great piece of advice for what you would tell your younger self. And that's a question I often like to ask, because I find that always so interesting. I mean, what people learn along the way. What else do you think you might tell your your younger self who was starting off in New York thinking I can't do music and and just such a different space. What would I tell my younger self? Just to go for it and to recognize that nobody else has it figured out either. I talk about this a lot too. Uh, I do a lot of speaking to particularly young women that there's some sort of confidence that comes with, you know, we talk about the white male confidence and it's just so real. And I would encourage young women to grasp that even if they don't fully believe in themselves just to stand up and do the thing they want to do because otherwise somebody who's not even remotely as talented as you are is going to do it and get accolades and you sit there second guessing yourself when you should just do the thing and I, I think about framing a lot you know and you take a piece of art and you put a frame on it it just suddenly makes it look valuable <laughs> and i feel like there's so many people out there who their frame is standing on a stage with a microphone and giving a TED talk. And so many of these big talks are not offering massive pieces of wisdom. They're offering things we know. But when you put that frame around it, it suddenly becomes more powerful. And I wish that I had put the frame around myself at a younger age. Love that notion. And we're just often afraid to put that frame around ourselves or think we don't deserve it or look on the outside and say someone else is more qualified for that, which as you point out, is usually not the case. They're just more confident. Mm -hmm. That confidence I definitely lacked. And even though I knew that I had the knowledge, I just didn't believe that I could possibly be ready yet. And so a lot of these things that I've done, I played with a lot of big artists and a lot of those were just, I can't believe I did it not because it was difficult, but because of the guts it took to write that letter or send that CD to that person. And suddenly it led to really good things. But you know, everyone else is doing that already. So why shouldn't I have been? Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you long because I know you have two little hands knocking on your door, especially in this crazy COVID <laughs> reality where kids are not in school and, and all of that. But I do want to mention, of course, mm -hmm. there's so much we didn't get to. I mean, you're also a coach for people in the music industry. Your latest album, Those Who Drift Away, you're a writer. You have this incredible blog that I find also really just wonderful in terms of 
you know, openness to what it is you're going through that so many other women are experiencing also and and can go to to hear someone else's story. It's really important to talk about that. And one more thing I'll just point out from what you said is trusting your instincts. I just want to highlight that about your own diagnosis overall in life, but also in health. You know, if you feel something, whatever it is, that to, to trust your instincts. And in your case, mm. thankfully, you did that. Yes, huge. You got to be your own advocate and everything in your career and your health and your family, because you're the one who knows what's going on. And you're the one who has the power to let other people see it, whether it's on stage or in the doctor's office. Well, Bridget, Kaylin, thank you so much for taking some time to talk about all of that stuff. I know some of it is obviously really difficult to talk about, but I think it's so helpful and so important to open up about those kinds of things because everyone's going through something. They are. We have to remember that. And we'll say goodbye with a little bit more of your music. This is Louisville. Bridget, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more, as always, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Tell me any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And here's a peek at next week's episode. Jane Ferguson is a seasoned war correspondent who spent over a decade reporting from places like Somalia, Syria, Yemen, and Afghanistan. She opens up about being a young female reporter by herself in conflict zones, the competition of network TV, and figuring out the hard way how to follow her intuition. I've often said, you know, my greatest asset in many situations is being underestimated. I find that, you know, sometimes men in positions of power, they see you as less of a threat. In many places it is, you know. A lot of cultures I work in are so chivalrous. I've seen men who, at the entrance to military bases in Yemen, who who don't dare close a door on me because, you know, so I've, I've literally like walked through places I'm not supposed to because they don't want to say no to this lady. And then you get back to New York and doors <laughs> slam door in your slam, face. Door slam, exactly. <laughs> I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.